please turn once more in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. Mark 16, we're going to actually be reading the uh, final verses of chapter 15, starting with verse 42. Um, if you've been at Christ Church for a few years, you know that I've been in Mark for most of the time that I've been here. Actually, I, I looked back in my records, and it was almost four years to the day that I uh, started this series uh, in Mark 1.1, and so I am grateful for this opportunity. I'm grateful for God's Word. I'm grateful for how God's Word speaks to us and that we can trust in it. Um, and here we are in the final chapter, chapter 16, and what a privilege it is to consider this text on the resurrection. Last week, of course, or, or last time we were here, it was two weeks ago actually on the calendar, um, but last time we saw that Jesus was crucified, dead, and was buried. I borrowed that line from the Apostles' Creed, which we recited together this morning. It goes on to say that, that Jesus descended into hell. I won't uh, spend a lot of time on that because I'm not preaching on the Apostles' Creed, thankfully. Uh, many theologians think that phrase means that speaking of his separation from God, and, and we talked about that as he bore the awful weight of our sin. And then the Creed gives us, as you know well, this wonderful truth, the third day he rose again from the dead. And that is the truth that we get to proclaim tonight. And this is the truth on which we base our religion and our very lives. Um, last week we said that the message of the cross was really the pinnacle of the gospel. Um, I still hold to that, but yet if it were not for the resurrection, as the Apostle Paul says, our faith is in vain and we are still in our sins. The resurrection is, as Herman Bovink said, the amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. The amen of the Father to the it is finished of the Son. So this evening we want to read um, this final chapter. Um, we'll pick up in uh, Mark uh, 15, 42, concerning Jesus' burial. So please give attention to the reading of God's Word. But before we do, let us bow and ask God's blessing upon His Word. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and we pray, O God, that You would bless it to our hearing but not just to our ears or our minds, Lord, may it go to our very hearts. May we not leave this room unchanged because of your word, because it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. May it go in cutting and come out cutting here tonight. Lord, do your work, O Holy Spirit, in the hearts of your people and in the hearts of any here that may not yet know you. Please draw them to yourself in your mercy and grace, we ask. Bless the preaching of your word, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, Lord, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Mark fifteen forty two. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. 
chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us, for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when they rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared... Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with them, and as they mourned and wept, but, as they, but when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking in the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go, to all the wor- go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven, and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them, and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy Word. This evening we are taking for our text verses 1 through 8. And if you have uh, noticed, if you have the ESV Bible before you, you perhaps have already read the footnote that might tell you something about something unusual about verses 9 through 20. Now, one thing, um, and, and it may only have a brief note, I'm, I'm not going to try to read the small print in my Bible, but it probably says something to the effect that the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 through 20, what uh, many theologians call the longer ending of Mark. Now, I, I don't think I need to say this, but I think it's helpful to be reminded of the fact that while we have not hundreds, but literally thousands of manuscript evidence for what we have in our hands or on our electronic devices this evening um, that, that is God's Word. We have not hundreds, but, but thousands, around 5,000 manuscripts that agree on nearly everything. Now, that is highly unusual um, when it comes to ancient literature. But what we have to understand about this is that verses 9 through 20 is missing, actually, from some of the oldest and and reliable manuscripts. 
I don't want to spend a lot of time here because I want to get to my text, but, but I just want to give a little background for why we are focusing on verses 1 through 8. Uh, those, this longer ending, verses 9 through 20, um, is not recognized by some of the early church fathers, Origen and Clement of Alexandria. Eusebius and Jerome state that this section is, is missing from most of the manuscripts available to them at that time. Um, textually, there are words and phrases that are uncommon to Mark, and for those reasons, most scholars think that this was not part of what Mark actually wrote. Now, that might be unsettling to us, but we can rest assured that we have God's word. Because what you see in verses 9 through 20 is kind of a summary, and even conservative scholar Sinclair Ferguson has said that it is a later postscript. And it seems to be a summary of the things that happened in the early church um, and in the days between Christ's resurrection and his ascension and in the early days of the church. So we can trust God's word, and so for, for those reasons, I want to deal particularly with verses 1 through 8. And I want to consider that under three headings. That is the bewilderment of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, and finally, the results of the resurrection. The bewilderment, the reality, and then the results of the resurrection. First of all, there is something bewildering about the resurrection. We have to admit that. We have to see that Jesus, the God-man, really did die. He was crucified upon the cross. His heart stopped beating. The blood stopped moving through his veins. His lungs ceased their activity. His brain ceased its activity. All of the medical markers of death were there because he genuinely, truly died upon the cross. He likely died from the loss of blood, from the scourging, from severe exhaustion, um, from asphyxiation, which is typically what killed many that, that died upon the cross. And if he was not dead before, then the, the spear that was thrust into his side likely pierced one of his lungs and probably his heart. And he was verified as being dead. Um, there are those that uh, have tried to say that Jesus never died, that he was only mostly dead, somehow unconscious, and, and, but still able to be revived. Um, and, and you see that attack coming from those that want to disprove the Bible, because this doctrine is pivotal. And if they can cast doubt upon Christ's resurrection, they can cast doubt upon all of Scripture. But Jesus really died, and that is bewildering to us, he was verified uh, as being dead by the centurion who watched him die. He, he pressed that to Pilate who questioned, is he really dead so soon? We see the testimony of the women at the end of chapter 15 that they, that they were, um, or earlier in 15, they, were watched, they watched as he died and they watched where he was laid as well. And I make this point to remind us of the obvious fact that if Jesus were not dead, he could not or did not need to be raised from the dead. But he did indeed die. And as our catechism said, he, he remained under the power of death for a time. And it's bewildering. We, we aren't exactly comfortable talking about it. We love talking about the incarnation when, when God condescended and, and took on flesh 
and what a beautiful picture that, that we, can, we can have in our minds of, as we think about the glorious truth of the incarnation that, that God became man so that he could accomplish redemption for us. But here, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, dies. Here, the divine nature is joined to a dead human nature. And we don't exactly know what to do with that. It's bewildering. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies, the hymnal writer, hymn writer says. So, but, but imagine, if it's bewildering to us, imagine what it must have been like for those nearest him. Their Sabbath, that the, the, their Sabbath the, the Saturday there between Christ's death on Friday afternoon and his resurrection on Sunday morning, that Sabbath of theirs on that Saturday was filled with darkness. The disciples were probably filled with guilt after having deserted Jesus. Peter, especially of all of the disciples, was filled with regret and remorse over having denied with an oath that he even knew the Lord. He probably wondered if he forfeited his status as a disciple. Here he was one of the leading disciples of the, of the three that are always with Jesus. Peter's right there in the middle of them. But he had denied Jesus with an oath. Pilate, too, was probably feeling some guilt, but also some relief, thinking that this ordeal was finally over with this man that he did not know what to do with. The Sanhedrin probably celebrated the Sabbath with self-righteous satisfaction that they had finally put down this one who had called himself the Messiah. And the women, the women who had watched Jesus die, they were faithful to the end. They followed Joseph to the tomb. They marked the place where he was laid. And they went home to a dark and dreary Sabbath. And they're seen here in chapter 16. And really the women are the theme of this whole passage in verses 1 through 8. And, and even the closing verses of chapter 15. It's the women and the faithful women that come. Op chapter 16 opens by telling us that the Sabbath was passed. Remember that, that his burial had been hasty because it had come at the end of the day of preparation and they didn't have time to, to deal with Christ's body appropriately. And, and they, while they didn't embalm the, 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 the corpses in that day like they did in Egypt, but they did uh, pack them with ointments and spices. And that was not done to their satisfaction. And so these ladies go probably after sundown on the Sabbath to purchase these spices and are ready when the, when the morning dawns, or even before dawn, on, uh, on the, the Sunday following the, the Sabbath. And so, um, really, you see this, this bewilderment, bewilderment among them. And, and here, as they approach the tomb, and, and there's such irony here, and, and we have to smile that these two ladies are on their way with, with great purpose and great love and great devotion. And then it hits them, whoa, wait a minute. There's a stone, there's a huge stone in front of this tomb. This tomb was, and, and you've probably seen pictures of, of what it might have looked like. It was hewn into the rock and it had a stone across the mouth of it. It might have been more like a tunnel rather than a cavern. We don't really know. Um, uh, tombs of that day would, would often hold more than one person. Um, but, but here they are on the way to... to pay their respects to the Lord, and, 
and they think, what are we doing? We haven't even provided or, or, or thought about how we're going to get the stone out of the way. Maybe they were thinking some kind Roman would, would show them kindness on that day. But they had failed to factor that into their plan. But they didn't have to wonder very long. To their surprise and amazement, the stone had already been rolled away. And Mark, even, even though he is always brief, he takes the time to tell us it was a large stone. They wasted no time. They went right into the tomb. That was their intention all along. But instead of finding a dead man, they see a man clothed in white that was very much alive and speaking to them. Now Mark doesn't tell us directly that it's an angel, but from their reaction and from the way he, he is described here, and especially in the other Gospels, we know that he was an angelic being. He was an angel. He was speaking God's word to them. Matthew tells us that it was an angel that came and rolled the stone away. Maybe it was this very, uh, very person, this very being that was speaking to them. Matthew tells us more details of the rolling away of the stone than it happened in conjunction with an earthquake. And the angel then rolled the stone away. Matthew tells us that that, that creature that was there, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for some reason, it's kind of a toned-down version in Mark. And as I uh, was, was thinking about this and preparing for this, I, I heard one preacher talking about, you know, maybe it was because uh, uh, an angel, the, the angel had a conversation with the Lord that said, you've got to, you can't put on all that radiance and all that brilliance because these ladies can't handle it. But they were amazed. They were amazed when they saw this heavenly being. But then, even though they were alarmed, the first words out of the mouth of this angel was, do not be alarmed. And he, he speaks peace to them. And then he continues to speak to them the glorious good news of the resurrection. Their bewilderment is understandable. They were not, they were clearly not expecting to see Jesus come out of the tomb. They were doing what they felt was honorable to his body. And their hope seemed to be gone. They were not expecting to see an empty tomb. And that brings us to our second point, the reality of the resurrection. Jesus, just as we sought to establish earlier, Jesus really did die. This angelic being tells them with authority that Jesus has risen other gospel accounts mention more than one angel that should not trouble us in the least because angelic beings are, are often present and not always visible. And, and for some reason, maybe they didn't even notice the second angel there. But other gospel accounts speak of two angels. But just because there was two doesn't mean each gospel writer has to recognize them. Angels do God's bidding. They speak exactly what God commands. And he knew, this angel knew why they were there. He says they were seeking Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He spoke to them in such a way that, that went right to their hearts and, and, and let them know that he knew exactly what was going on. He spoke with authority. He was seated there, it says. And that's a position of teaching and authority in that culture. And he was teaching them and he was speaking what they were thinking in a sense. And then he says, he is not here, he is risen. He has risen. See the place where they laid him. 
And this angel proclaims this glorious good news. And this, this comes to us without a lot of explanation of the moment of Christ's resurrection. And, and that may trouble us in a sense, um, but I, I recently heard a song a, a few months ago. I think it's been out for a few years, um, and, and perhaps you're familiar with it, and it speaks about the moment of Christ's resurrection. It's called His Heartbeats by Andrew Peterson. It says, His heart beats, His blood begins to flow. Waking up what was dead a moment ago, and his heart beats. Now everything is changed, because the blood that brought us peace with God is racing through his veins, and his heart beats. He breathes in, his living lungs expand. The heavy air surrounding death turns to breath again. He breathes out, he is word and flesh once more. The Lamb of God slain for us as a lion ready to roar. And his heart beats. And then it goes into the chorus. So crown him the Lord of life. Crown him the Lord of love. Crown him the Lord of all. Now Mark is writing to Christians, many of whom had either seen Jesus or personally knew those who had seen him. They knew that Jesus had indeed rose from the dead. They didn't need an explanation of the moments of his resurrection. They knew that he was and is very much alive. But the angel points to something that I think is significant. He wanted the women to witness the fact of the resurrection by the fact that the place where Jesus was, he is no longer there. His body was missing. John tells us that the grave clothes were there, and, and he gives us the detail that the face cloth over the Lord's face was folded in a separate place. But his resurrection is evidenced by the absence of the body. See the place where they laid him, the angel said. And so this is a good question for us to consider, and especially to give to skeptics today, who would ask us, or would cast, seek to cast doubt upon the resurrection, where is the body? Where is the body? The Jewish leaders didn't have it, because they would have produced it immediately, with triumph, saying, look, here he is, he's dead, can't you see? The Romans wouldn't have kept it hidden for fear of the followers of Christ bringing in a, another uprising and, a, and, a, and, a, and a, a revolt against their rule. The disciples, of course, didn't have it, for if they did, they never would have established a religion that called upon many, and even most of them, to die for their faith. The fact of the matter is, is just as the angel announced, he is not there because he has risen and he lives forever more. And that brings us to our third and final point, the results of the resurrection. What are the results of the resurrection? Well, we could go on for, for a long time speaking about what it means to us as believers, knowing that Christ has risen. And we could go on for, for even longer, perhaps, and, and share the glorious hope of the gospel for those that are outside of Christ. Because of Christ's resurrection, there is hope for you. His he, he has conquered death, hell, and the grave. We want to consider the results of the resurrection. The results for Christ is that, is that he is vindicated and glorified. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us in, in language that is, was probably an early creed, a creed in the early church. 
It says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And that word vindicated is the same word from which we get justified. Now, Jesus, of course, was not justified in the sense that we as sinners are justified. We are justified in that we receive Christ's righteousness imputed to us. That is our justification. But Jesus was justified upon his resurrection in that it was proclaimed by God that he was completely innocent and personally undeserving of death. The resurrection is a way of the Father saying that Christ is worthy of being raised and has completed the work of redemption that the triune God has from eternity past set out to do. Jesus was also raised incorruptible. He received a glorified body and he lives eternally with that body. He was and still is the God-man. And because of this, he is the first fruits of our resurrection, as the Apostle Paul tells us in that glorious chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, that he is the first fruits of our resurrection. And the resurrection brings, in a sense, new glory even to Christ. John T. Rhodes it says, he is the firstborn of the new creation. In that sense, Easter Sunday is the New Testament equivalent of Genesis 1:1. God spoke, Christ arose, and the new world sprang to life. For all those who die in Christ, their resurrection is certain because Christ really and truly rose from the dead. By his death and resurrection, he has opened a new and living way for us to come into God's presence and ultimately to be made right with a holy God. But what about for you and me? Well, the Apostle Paul loves the language of the resurrection in speaking of our new life in Christ and what it means to us as believers that we are united with Christ. He talks about us being united with Christ in his burial, and he, in his crucifixion and burial. And because of that, we are dead to sin, the Apostle says. And because of his resurrection, we are raised to new life and there is hope for us in Christ and there is power for us to live apart and separate from sin because of the resurrection. Romans 6 is that, that glorious treatise in which he tells us that. But finally, the results of the resurrection call for action. What did the angel tell the, 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 the women there? He says in verse 7, go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. It's interesting to see that he says his disciples and Peter. No doubt Peter was wondering if he was still one of the disciples. And God in his great mercy spoke through this angel to say, say this. Don't just say the disciples. Say the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And for the disciples, what was it for them? They were, to, they were to go to Galilee, look for him in Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And it seems that there's a gentle rebuke by, by God to the disciples because Jesus has said again and again that this would happen, that, that he would be crucified, that he would rise again from the dead. And in chapter 8, Verse 31, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things 
and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And just one chapter over in chapter 9, verse 31, as well for 31 and 32, it says, For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, for they were afraid to ask him. And then once again in chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, very similar language where Jesus says, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And here the angel is giving them a gentle rebuke, it seems, to say, this is just what Jesus said. This is just what Jesus said would happen. And it, he has fulfilled his word. There was an action required. Now, if you look at this and if you follow the scholars that say, and I, I, uh, you follow those that say that, that Mark ends his gospel on verse 8, it's certainly a cliffhanger. It's, it's almost confusing. And I don't know about you, if, if, if you watch TV shows that, that leave you as on, a, on a cliffhanger note. Uh, a number of years ago, our oldest daughter had a, had a job where she worked into the evening and I, I like to stay up and, and make sure my kids get home, even if they're working late. And, and I, I don't think I was as busy as I feel now, but we would sometimes watch a TV show. And it was an action show, and it always ended on a cliffhanger. And, I, and she would always say, Dad, let's watch another episode. Let's watch an episode. And I'd say, no, i got to go to bed. And so finally, we got to a point where we would simply watch it from the middle of one episode to the middle of the next one, and then we would stop. So we didn't have to end on that cliffhanger. So maybe you're like that and you don't like the cliffhangers and you don't like the way Mark ends. But if you remember the Gospel of Mark, how it began and how we looked at that four years ago, what does he say in Mark 1.1? He doesn't begin with a long, flowery birth narrative. He just jumps right in. He says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He doesn't wait for you to catch up. You just got to grab hold and hang on with Mark. And here he ends with these women. They fled from the tomb. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's Mark's final word, if, if, if you understand that this to be the end of, of, of the gospel. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts that, that whatever was going on in this verse with these women, they, they did take the, the message. They did take the message to the disciples but here Mark leaves us with them astonished and trembling and afraid. And if you remember, when we first started this out, and I've told you this again and again, that there's three things that Mark wants us to have. He wants us to understand who Jesus is. He wants us to understand what Jesus came to do. And he wants us to understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And I'm here to tell you folks that you should be changed by an encounter with Jesus. These women certainly were. I hope you have. I have been by my encounters with Jesus. Even in the pages of Mark as I've preached it, it has hit me upside the head in some ways that I did not expect. And, and I, was, I was humbled to see that I was not obeying Christ in the way that, that I should be. 
Because to follow Jesus means that you have to sometimes give up everything. Because we see men and women in this gospel that did that. A true encounter with Jesus will leave you trembling and awestruck. I heard it said that John MacArthur was was talking to uh, another preacher. Many of you know the ministry of John MacArthur. And and, um, this, this minister said that, that Jesus came in and spoke to him while he was shaving one morning and said that he walked into the bathroom and, and, um, and, and, and spoke to him, put his hand on his shoulders, and, and, um, and John MacArthur, you know, obviously didn't, didn't, uh, you know, didn't think this man had his theology straight. Okay, I'll just, I'll just leave it at that. He said, I just have one question for you. He said, did you stop shaving? <laughs> and I thought, that is so brilliant. Because if Jesus came in here tonight, we would be different. We would be changed. And the Jesus of the gospel of Mark should change us, folks. And if you have not been changed by the gospel, you need to cry out to God. Because you can't leave God's word indifferent. You will either be changed by it and conform to Christ's image, or you will be hardened to it, and I fear for your soul. So you have a responsibility. These women had a message to take forth, and you have a responsibility because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is hope in the gospel for us, and we should be changed by the risen Savior. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight, I invite you to come to him today. If you don't understand what that means, I implore you, come to me. I would love to tell you about the Savior. I would love to tell you about the Lord Jesus and and help you understand what he calls of you, he calls you to. What a blessing it is to know him this evening. Let us pray.